doing the picture in picture on the Skype chat so that you have double chest. Double chest? It's coming through in the chat now. Plop, plop. <laughs> A little chat sound. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> The idea of on top of my shoulders is a much narrower pair of shoulders and then my tiny little head. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, I figured I would go the reverse of the actual <laughs> dimensions of your body. <laughs> Just call me Triangle Man. Triangle Man. I hate Particle Man. Particle Man? Mm-hmm. And his particle board. No, why is it? They might be <sighs> Giant Song from 1990. It's one of their most popular hits. Who? Which band? They might be giants, Wyatt. Oh. They might be giants. I might be a pretend fan. I do like those guys, but I I don't know. They're, they're ill. Well, you're a piece of shit, Wyatt. A piece I'm of a shit. I'm a basic bitch. <laughs> I, I know the Constantinople song or whatever they do. <laughs> same, same album. Ha, uh-huh, well. <laughs> oh, boy. So anyway. That's good. That's, that's nice. That's quality content. You recording? I've been recording this entire sad conversation. Yeah, I have too. Cool. <laughs> Welcome to Super Duper Stitches. The paranormal podcast about the science of the strange. I'm Wyatt. I'm Jake. And uh, yeah, this is a show that looks at the paranormal, the creepy, the unexplained, and says, huh. That is to say, of course, we're a couple of scientists who like spooky stuff and like trying to understand the weird world we live in. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for joining us again, unless this is your first time, in which case, very bold choice to start with an episode that explicitly has part two in the title. That part two, of course, refers to the two-part deep dive we're concluding today, what we call a super-duperstitious special report. To kick off October, the spookiest month of all, we thought it would be fun to hit you all with our eighth special report. That's right, we've done this eight whole times. Wow. Focusing on what it is that we humans like about scary stories. Yeah, so why do we enjoy being scared to the point where a whole genre of fiction caters to that specific desire? I have no idea. We Yeah, we're going to find out ourselves during the course of this. We, When we write these special reports, we go into a <laughs> trance for a yeah. couple days, and then what comes out is just a bunch of copy that we just read to you. Yeah, we ghostwrite them for ourselves somehow. <laughs> yep. <laughs> But yeah, what is it about books, movies, slumber parties when we're kids, uh, TV shows, dare I say podcasts, that we no. find enjoy- okay. to- enjoyable to seek out again and again, even those of us, specifically us, who <laughs> kind of hate being scared. That's right. Uh, last week, we gave some examples of spooky stories, then explained an aspect of what makes them appealing. So I dug into historical ghost stories from the past and the even more past, and briefly discussed some of the cultural stuff that gives that format staying power. And I, of course, introduced the psychological and even, to some degree, physiological effects of consuming horror fiction and all forms of what is effectively what one could call safe danger. Mm. But as is customary in our special reports, we kept one part one fairly surface level so this week we'll dig in a little more so either get out your notebooks or see you next week <laughs> jake do you want to kick us off sure and if this helps that anyone want to stay around more we will have the scariest story of all at the end of the episode so that's right stay tuned we are absolutely preparing a trip to probably the scariest place ever that's right so the main takeaway from my stuff last week was that ghost stories are a pretty universal cultural experience across both location and time, and that the familiar tropes and story beats have always been there. In a lot of cases, those stories are meant purely for entertainment purposes, but entertainment in the form of scares. So I think mm. you later on will cover more about how and why being scared is actually fun for anyone. Oh, I, in yeah. turn, want to cover a bit more about what cultural purposes spookness can serve. Why? <laughs> so for starters, here's a summary of a neat little folk tale from the Awabakal folks of what is now New South Wales. This story huh. refers to um, Lake Macquarie, I think that's how you say it. Hmm. Uh, so they say, quote, Everyone loves to go swimming in the hot summertime, but some places are definitely more dangerous than others. Just north of Sydney, there is a water hole known to the Awabakal people as Wawaran. Hmm. In this deep water hole is a creature named Wawai that patiently waits underneath the surface. 
while Y likes it when it is calm and silent and gets really angry when people disturb his peace and quiet. Mm. If you were to jump into his water hole and splash around making lots of noise, while Y would quickly pull under the, uh, pull you under the water, angry at your disturbing his restful peace. So in short, they're basically saying, stay the heck out of the water, kids. I mean, this is an abbreviated version of what the story is. This is from a... Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is from... They're like, he won't like it very much. All right, well, we're <laughs> along. Good. Yep. He'll kill you. Uh, this is from a, a list of a bunch of different um, type of ghost stories in uh, different Aboriginal and Torres Strait people's mythologies. And it's mm. But so I have a little bit from a, uh, I think this is a press release for the University of South Carolina. I have a couple of, of quotes from those about some different books of professors of theirs. They say uh, that fear-inducing tales were useful in early societies as a way to teach children about natural predators like bears and wolves. I mean, we've we've covered all kinds of different folklore that clearly serves as a caution to children and adults alike to behave oh, in a yeah. certain way for their own self-preservation. Corn demonin. Yeah, just very recently we got into that. And like I think pretty frequently I like to get into kind of ghoul stuff and we <laughs> kind of concluded that it seems like the original ghoul stories seem to be more focused on, hey, don't wander into the desert. It's not good to <laughs> go out there. It's a bad call. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but as people started to more deeply ponder the meaning of life and death over time, uh, their stories began to reflect that self-recognition and struggle with inner demons. The monsters are us, in a sense, says Associate Professor of Anthropology and Communication, Talk Thompson. They are that very dangerous part of us, and it's good to recognize and be afraid of those evil parts of yourself. A good example of ethical guidance embedded in a scary story can be found in the Latin American tale of La Llorona. The spirit of a mother who drowned her children in a fit of jealous rage, La Llorona wails as she regretfully searches for their bodies, bringing misfortune to those who hear her cries. There are, of course, uh, multiple different versions of the story with very different explanations for who she is and why that is her whole deal. But all of them tend to have some kind of connection to consequences of some sort. Mm. Uh, although a lot of horror fiction nowadays doesn't necessarily have as straightforward a moral as older ghost stories, typically there's still some kind of theme or allegory throughout which is meant to sink in on some level. So mm-hmm. whether whether it's an actual like straight-up fable that has a totally mm. clear moral or just modern horror fiction that we're consuming there's some sort of message there that we're supposed to get usually and uh yeah (laughs) right so scary stories are fun but they also are a means of teaching important lessons and drawing attention to important issues yeah that's cool much better to be scared by the story than actually die in the desert or what have you (laughs) yes (laughs) that's just kind of the person they can serve so why 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 do we even like them what is why is that a useful way of doing that why do we enjoy them so much Mm-hmm. Well, last week I touched on a few of the main psychological and physiological reasons we enjoy experiencing frightening movies, books, media in general. Things that in even slightly different contexts would inspire justifiably heart-shocking terror. And as it turns out, there are a ton of reasons we get a kick out of getting spooked. I'll just go back over a few of those briefly here before going on, which include the safety net. We know we're watching it or reading a story. It's safe so we can get scared and not feel like we're going to die. The flood, our bodies still undergo a measure of physiological fear response and we enjoy the subsequent endorphin release. Not to be confused with Flood, the 1990 album by They Might Be Giants. Nor the flood, the enemy from the Halo game, (laughs) (laughs) which is the album I was listening to when They Might Be Giants was out. Um, Closeness with others. Taking on a scary story or movie is a bonding experience, as you all share in the endeavor together. Curiosity, desire to explore the unknown and otherworldly. Safe testing of limits or emotional regulation. So this is the controlled confrontation or expansion of our horizons in dealing with anxiety or otherwise nerve testing scenarios. Mm -hmm. And when all else fails, simple distraction from personal anxieties and displeasures, of which I'm sure most of us have in spades right now. Freud also made an appearance from Beyond the Grave to offer his own stodgy Freudian suggestions, which are that spooking, spooking experience, (laughs) experiencing spooky media. Being spooked, the experience of being spooked. Being spooked is illogical (laughs) and is thus a fun, logical reality check. It is also an opportunity to process repressed complexes because it's Freud. (laughs) 
and he suggests there is a kind of endless captivation with things associated with what he calls infantile anxieties, which are mm-hmm. those primordial fears of darkness, loneliness, and silence. So, with all that said again, let's dive in a little bit further. Do let's. Author Matthias Klassen, or Matthias, um, and his colleagues at Aarhus and Pennsylvania State University. In the middle of R Street? Oh, yes. Aarhus in the middle of R Street. Uh, joke that I'm sure most listeners will get. <laughs> they published the article Horror Personality and Threat Simulation, a survey on the psychology of scary media. This was published in the American Psychological Association's journal Evolutionary Behavioral Sciences. Hmm. As the article's title suggests, they seek to explore the seemingly paradoxical quality of the thriving horror entertainment industry. Who's watching scary stuff? And why are they watching it? Mm -hmm. They gather data from a pool of 1,070 people, split roughly evenly between male and female participants. Pretty decent sample size. Yeah. It's sort of like, who are you? What are you into? What do you like about horror? And or do you even like it? So enjoying frightening media is perhaps unsurprisingly not a niche phenomenon. Moreover, it is relatively age dependent with slightly decreasing enjoyment with age. They also found a small gender difference in that male-identified individuals tend to enjoy horror more so than female, Mm. use horror more frequently, prefer more frightening material, and are less scared than females after exposure to horror. My critique on this point, who's to say this isn't just sociocultural conditioning, guiding male responses on the survey. Especially because they chose to break it up into a just gender binary. Exactly. But we'll take them for this for now. Hmm. Apparently, males, moreover, use visual horror media alone more often than do females, who are more likely to consume audiovisual horror in groups. They also found a positive correlation between sensation-seeking and horror preference in use. I'm just picturing dudes like going into movie theaters alone and make sure there's no one else in the theater. <laughs> like, choose a random weird showtime so they can be the I've only person there. I've got to do this on my own. <laughs> Pretty much. They also found a positive correlation between the big five personality dimension of intellect slash imagination, which I think falls under neurosis, and use, suggesting that people who seek out horror tend to desire intellectual or imaginative stimulation. Hmm. And finally, they found that people with stronger beliefs in the paranormal tend to seek out horror media with supernatural content, whereas those with weaker beliefs in the paranormal gravitate toward horror media with natural content suggesting Mm. that people seek out horror with threatening stimuli that they perceive to be plausible, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah. And you and I seek out uh, sci-fi channel original movies because we like bonkers nonsense monsters. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Also, the writing is actually quite good. (laughs) People who seek out horror then expect a high level of fear from using horror media. And those who are high on the sensation-seeking and intellect imagination charts in particular also expect to experience positive emotions such as joy and anticipation when they engage in this kind of media. Further, people who engage with horror more often also prefer more extreme forms of horror, which they argue supports the benign masochism account of horror media. So they'll talk about that more in a minute. Essentially, Clausen and his colleagues offer that folks who truly love horror enjoy gradual mastery of initially aversive situations. With exposure, one builds up a certain level of coping competence, and this effect is likely moderated by other variables such as age, gender, sensation-seeking, and intellect or imagination sort of appetite. They argue that their results thus support an evolutionary conception of horror media use and the threat simulation hypothesis. Essentially, people find pleasure in imaginative simulations of threat scenarios as a form of benign masochism, whether in literature, film, or video games. Through such simulations, individuals can expand their behavioral and emotional repertoire through enduring an initially, partly, aversive stimulus. Such horror simulations may thus serve the adaptive function of preparation for real-world encounters with negative emotions and or hostile others. Hmm. In other words, we enjoy and can even grow through what are objectively gross, frightening, or otherwise not fun (laughs) media. (laughs) And it does... it makes some sense. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, that's about it. And it can it prepare us or on some level can be rewarding as a preparation for ever having to engage with that in real life. 
but there's also a there's probably a degree of self-selection there when folks are already interested in it they're already they're also going to be more able to handle it and then it'll have a more beneficial effect for them but uh but it does make sense that if you're able to get through something really scary in fiction form and and be okay with it you'll be potentially less scared if something real life happened presumably not some kind of monster or ghost thing but like you know a shocking or frightening situation yeah you've you've kind of lived in that fight flight freeze place before in a safe way and kind of learned what that's like and dealt with it so when it when it actually comes time to use it for real it's not so foreign uh, a feeling and maybe is easier to uh to think within precisely and in the meantime even if it's not like a true test of your capacity to deal it can reliably just make you feel good yeah Speaking of feeling good, do we have a beer break? Ooh, let's do it. I dare say it's time for The The Quaff. So what do we have on the docket today, Jake? We have a beer that neither of us has ever seen or heard of or consumed before. Uh, we have it. We don't even know. We the <laughs> bottle is hidden from us right now. Both of us. I don't even know if it's a bottle. It might be a can. Um, this is not a beer oh, that dear. we chose because we just happen to know we can both find it where we both live. This is a beer that's just totally new to us, and that beer is from New Holland Brewing in Michigan, and it's called Dragon's Milk. Michigan. Michigan. I'm sorry. My goodness gracious me! A beer I've never had. A uh, beer that I can't even see right now, if I'm uh-huh. honest. <laughs> the beer I sure I certainly haven't been drinking for the entire episode so far. A beer that I imagine you are probably not a little bit already pretty fucking buzzed off of. It's not a beer that I forgot was 11% before I cracked it open. <laughs> because I didn't crack it open and haven't had it. <laughs> I, can, uh, I also do not see a glass full of some dark liquid <laughs> on your desk. <laughs> Obviously, the quaff is a segment where we drink and review <laughs> beer based on three categories. Why? What are they? Physicality. Mm-hmm. What's that beer look like? How does it pour? What's the bottle appear to be? Jake, chugability. How fast can you drink this beer? Yeah, is it is it is it a is it a chugger or a sipper? And of course, Jumadavi. <laughs> Let's begin. So I, having this beer in front of me right now, Mm -hmm. I can tell you it comes in a box. (laughs) Mine's in a long, long tube. I don't know. (laughs) I am going to try to open the beer. Okay. I need to find some scissors. While I do this, do you want to describe the tube that you're looking at? Yeah, it's a glass tube. It does narrow near the top. Oh, it is a bottle. Okay. Yeah, it's got just a pretty basic sort of label that looks like some gray dragon scales, and then there's a white silhouette of a dragon on it. Pretty classic kind of fantasy sort of thing going on there, but, you know, not too much in your face. If you think of a fantasy novel that has just way too many colors and and things going on, this is actually pretty subtle, and for that I like it. I think my bottle is a cardboard. (laughs) There is a smile, and it says amazing. Um, <laughs> Let's look at the rest of the physicality by looking at the beer itself. So I'll just go ahead and open this bottle. All right. And I'll just pour it into the glass here. <laughs> All right. That is clearly the bourbon barrel aged stout that it claims to be. Very dark. Actually got a little bit more head on that than I meant to. Ooh, very heady. Yes. But uh, it is. I'm holding it up to the light here and I cannot see through it. That's pretty cool. That's cool. I also cannot see through my beer, <laughs> which is cardboard box. <laughs> I think we may have a different experiences today, but we'll see how it goes. And I'm going to open the beer now. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. There appear to be a series of books inside the beer. Oh, wow. So for the physicality, I will give it a six. 
I will give mine... Also a six. All right. A good rectilinear feeling off of this off of this one. Uh, what does your <laughs> beer taste like, Jake? <laughs> right. Go ahead. Try it. Oh, that is quite nice. There are a lot of different bourbon barrel aged stouts that are a little too strong for me in terms of how heavy they are on the bourbon notes. And uh, I don't know if this doesn't necessarily label itself as an actual imperial stout, even though the percentage is up there. But it doesn't have that booziness you might expect either. It's it's very smooth for what it is, and I mm. enjoy it. That sounds good. What I, do you think? I will try this. Mm-hmm. It does say joy of cooking. Um, <laughs> I'm tasting it now. <laughs> I did not taste... The bourbon, I did not taste the barrel, and I did not taste the stout. You might have got a little bit of the barrel. I did taste the age, though. It does taste okay. <laughs> rather dusty. It does taste very flat. <laughs> and I will give this, I don't know. I guess I'll give this just a straight flat zero. All right. Kind of don't really want to chug it, don't really want to sip it, if I'm honest. <laughs> I think I'll give mine a... Two. It's you know it's kind of on the edge there. It does have the higher alcohol volume, so it's good to take your time with it. We won't be doing that though, will we? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the Rodvive. <laughs> yes, uh, for that I'm gonna go with Dragon, <laughs> <laughs> and I will go with Milk. <laughs> <laughs> and this has been. <laughs> the quaff. Oh god. Jake, was that okay? I think so. <laughs> I feel like it was weird. <laughs> no, it was definitely that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about a beer that not only do we like, but they also like us back. I think that can only mean one thing, and that of course is Four oh, Phantoms. Man. A groovy little brewery in western Massachusetts. One that pours ingredients such as, Jake, do you want to do it with me? D&D. Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, heavy metal. I was going to say alternative rock. <laughs> and, and beer. Beer. They make beer. We love the beer. You should drink the beer as much as we drink the beer. It's a great beer. They are located <laughs> in Eastern Mass. Oh, I keep saying that. It's East Hampton. They are located in Western Mass. Uh, if you are at all within driving distance of there, or if you live in Massachusetts or Rhode Island, it's available in stores. They have a bunch of different seasonal offerings every season, and currently they are rocking uh, Witch Cult IPA and Worship mm. Doom, which I believe you... I was secretly quaffing Worship Doom this whole time. <laughs> ha ha! Everyone has been had. <laughs> it's delicious. It's also... Well, it's an Imperial Stout rather than a Burble Baron-aged Stout. Uh-huh. Bourbon barrel aged out. Good lord. And clearly I've had almost the entire pint of it. And that one is brewed with some local delicious maple syrup. Mm-hmm. But do check them out. Do please. And if you cannot reach their products physically, consider leaving them a review blindly. <laughs> on WhatsApp. On untapped. Oh, on what, WhatsApp. Did I say WhatsApp? Oh my god. Oh no. <laughs> Jake, what's happening? Why did I choose the highest ABV (laughs) for an episode where we have to do a lot of like actual facts and stuff? (laughs) Um, Leave them a kindly worded review on WhatsApp or (laughs) untapped.com. And if you mention us in that review, we will know to read it on the show and that'll be fun. And yeah, if you want to just go based on the weird shit we say on the show to make your review, hey, that's fun. (laughs) If it's a positive review, it helps them. Just like a positive review of our show helps with visibility, it's a good way to get them more business and you should do it. So thank you very much for fandoms. We appreciate you. Back to the show. Mm Mm-hmm. So you gave us some direct practical reasons why folks are drawn to being scared. Something else you brought up in oh, it, something else you brought up is the idea of horror fiction basically simplifying our problems. So, real life is a murky mess of decisions and consequences and stress. While the reality of a scary movie can often be much more clearly separated into distinct bins of like good and bad, uh, that alone can be satisfying to our brains. But there also are important implications within the actual ideas that we choose to label good and bad in those stories. So, for our purposes today. I'm going to refer to the bad elements in scary stories with the umbrella term monster. And to learn about monsters, I'll be taking some insight from Leo Brody, a professor and author of the 2016 book Haunted, 
on ghosts, witches, vampires, zombies, and other monsters of the natural and supernatural world. Very frightening title. Because nobody uh, who wants to write about paranormal stuff can be concise with their titles. So here's a little bit from (laughs) the press release uh, for that book at the University of South Carolina. They say, quote, In Haunted, Brody divides monsters into four categories. First, the monster from nature, which embodies our fear of an uncontrollable natural world. The Frankensteins. No, that's a later one. What? Yeah. Man versus uh, nature? Oh, uh, look at there. So in this case, examples fall okay, into two groups. So there's mysterious, elusive, but ultimately less threatening monsters like Sasquatch, the Yeti, or the Loch Ness Monster. And then there are more destructive types like Godzilla or King Kong that uh, embody the fear that nature will take its revenge for our transgressions against it. Hmm. The second type of monster is associated with the fear of science. So this is what you're getting at. Frankenstein mm. gives an example of this kind of monster created purposefully by a scientist whose hubris leads him to believe he can rival God's creativity to bring to life an unprecedented being. Mm-hmm. Uh, Splice does this in a way less elegant way. Splice? Oh, man. Uh, third is the Jekyll and Hyde monster, which reflects the more complex late Victorian view of human psychology. Mm. This is rendered in terms of fears of the monstrousness of one's otherwise repressed self. So it kind of started in, in Victorian times with that book, and then it, it kind of evolved into just being a fear of kind of what's inside of us. So this psychological monster from within also kind of fits with these t- type of storytelling that heads in the what if we're the real monsters direction uh, that you see yes. a lot more commonly nowadays in fiction. Mm-hmm. And then finally, there is the monster from the past that arrives to take revenge on us and our modern cult of progress, improvement, and change. Mm. So this encompasses a whole lot, including every iteration of the dead returning. So your oh. ghosts, your vampires, zombies, etc. Those can all be different versions of the past coming back to uh, to do something bad. Right, right. With regards specifically to vampires and zombies, are you familiar at all with uh, the idea of why, of when culturally we tend to be more interested in zombie fiction versus vampire fiction, at least in the U.S.? Huh. Culturally, zombie versus vampire fiction? Mm-hmm. There are specific times, and it's kind of cyclical. Of I when- would say zombie during times of civil unrest or times of financial boom close so it is you're on the right track for sure about what kind of mentality gets into it but it's basically just when when a republican is in office we get into zombie movies and when a democrat is we tend to be more into vampire movies Ooh. so it's kind of tapping into a cultural fear of mindless mob mentality just like this kind of cult following of some sort of demagogue type thing right that people often perceive in their republican opponents um leads to a lot of zombie fiction in terms of uh, you know brainless masses just wreaking havoc and then when a democrat is in office there is this fear of sort of a an elite uh nefarious sexy cool (laughs) powerful person immortal glittery (laughs) um desirable but yeah so just depending on what power seems to be exerting itself on society in general in this country anyway uh, that tends to influence what types of scary fiction people want to then make. That's fascinating. Yeah. I'll tell you, they don't feature many zombies in erotic fiction. That is true. Except the weird shit. Hey, what do you call it weird? <laughs> uh, some more from Brody, who says, Our love of monsters shows us how preoccupied we are with death and mortality. Our obsession with monsters provides the counterbalance to our own change in funerary practices as described in uh, Jessica Mitford's book, The American Way of Death, which, yeah, now it's medicalized, sanitized death that takes place mostly in hospitals, far removed from our daily lives. So what horror does, he says, is keep our mortality squarely in front of us. Hmm, that's cool. And more than that, it could be argued that monsters in fiction also serve the purpose of just giving us something to root against. Sometimes a Hmm. monster is a scapegoat for a specific mindset. Mm-hmm. So again, the vampires and zombies, when you're thinking of like, oh, the the party that's in power and how we can make them into some kind of villain for mm. a work of fiction, right. or even the monsters can be a, a stand-in for a specific figure or archetype. But overall, telling these stories allows us to engage with societal-level anxieties on a personal scale. Very cool. So Wyatt, uh, what does it do to our brains? 
Well, I just so happened to find yet another article also published in the APA family of journals. That's, again, Mm -hmm. the American Psychological Association of Journals. This time, the journal Emotion. This article was written by Margie or Margie Kerr and her colleagues and is entitled Voluntary Arousing Negative Experiences Uh or Vain, Uh. Why We Like to Be Scared. Hmm. So, to summarize this article, the authors examined a, another set of survey data, this time combining it with neural reactivity associated with, just as the title suggests, voluntarily engaging in high arousal negative experiences, a.k.a. <laughs> big scurs. So or terrified boners. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Basically, it sounds like they parked their lab outside of a certifiable haunted house extreme haunted attraction TM and collected (laughs) survey data measuring self-reported affect, expectations, and experience from 262 young adults. Wow. Roughly another 50-50 split of men and women. uh, Both before and after going through the haunted house. So people show up, they sign up if they're interested, they describe how they're feeling and kind of what they expect to experience in there. How anxious are they? How stressed are they? How excited? And then they go through, they have their experience, they come out, and they describe how they're feeling on the other side. Hmm. Of this set, 100 went on to complete an electroencephalography assessment. Whoa. Um, Is that when they stick the little doodads all over your head? They stick the little doodads all over your head, often referred to as an EEG for obvious reasons. Uh, Oh, okay. This allows for a measurement of electrical activity in different parts of the brain, signifying various degrees of neural signaling and activity. So people, uh, again, 100 folks from the 262 went on to complete one of these assessments. It sounds like actually on site, if not pretty nearby or not much later. In the middle of the haunted house. Yeah, during the haunted house experience. <laughs> and they uh, they did this in exchange for a printout of an image of their brain waves, which uh, sounds like a pretty freaking cute Halloween study, if I'm honest. Yeah. So, right. Kerr and her colleagues were interested in exploring whether there may be some consistent patterns between self-reported enjoyment of a very frightening, but ultimately recreational experience, and actual neural activity in the brain so here we go we have psychology now meeting with physiology in the realm of fear so what Mm. do they find out intriguingly as the authors write quote widespread neural systems appear to be deactivated by vein again this is their abbreviation for voluntary arousing negative experiences (laughs) not abbreviation what's the word i'm looking for the acronym acronym thank you god i can never remember that word with the highest cortical reactivity pre-experience among those who benefited most from the experience. I'll get into what this means in a second, so just bear with me. Okay. This general finding parallels other observations of decreased brain activity that are associated with increased ability to cope with threat or difficult situations such as hand-holding and mindfulness meditation. Hmm. Associations of change in EEG from pre to post voluntary arousing negative experience with feeling happy post experience suggest that high arousal negative stimuli may indeed change the way we process information. So what they're saying is based on self-reporting and these EEG scans, folks who were coming in, this is my understanding of it at least, Mm-hmm. Folks who came came into the experience the most anxious about it actually benefited the most from the experience. Interesting. So in other words, personal reports of positive, successful fear confrontation were mirrored by neural activity and suggest, the authors contend, that this kind of voluntary engagement with frightening media can have similarly positive neurological effects as much more traditionally peaceful and positive mental and physiological strategies, such as mindfulness meditation or hand-holding, okay. if that makes sense. So okay. far, does that make sense to you, Jake? Yeah, and I think this is the part where I recommend very highly that based on this, you really should make a trip back to New Hampshire this month and go to Haunted Overload. <laughs> no. <laughs> But it's so much fun why you would love it. Maybe I will. Maybe I will. Maybe I will. And they have the Fright Night Light where you can go and not have people jump out at you. So you can just walk through and see all the lights on but not get scared. 
All right, fine. It's really, really cool. And it sounds like if you're even more scared when you start, then clearly there's even more benefit to you when you come out. Yeah, it's true. I'll be immortal. Listeners, if you're not from the New England area, uh, Haunted Overload, not a sponsor. We actually tried to get the guy who runs it to interview last year, but he was not available. For the last six years, I have gone. It's right in, in Lee, New Hampshire. Fucking rules. It's a haunted forest attraction. It's just so cool. If you look at superduperstitions.com slash shop and the photos of Wyatt and me on location in a spooky kind of background, that is Haunted Overload. They let us shoot there because they're really cool. Yeah. End of interjection. Don't tell them how the sausage is made. (laughs) But yeah, it is awesome. It's pretty impressive. Seen by day by this guy. (laughs) All right. So they go on. While there are elements of the macabre and gross discomfort associated with the examined experience, namely going through a spooky haunted house. In many ways, it is similar to recreational sports. There's a high amount of uncertainty, of physiological arousal, pushing mental and physical boundaries and social interaction. Within the context of safety and control, guests allow themselves to lean in to the fear-inducing experience and reach higher levels of psychological and undefended physiological arousal than in day-to-day experiences. Mm. Again, obviously, most of our listeners will understand this implicitly, but when they talk about arousal, they simply mean physiochemical, overall, cognitive, bodily arousal, not getting all bothered in the pants. (laughs) Furthermore, the relationships between affect, experience ratings, and feeling they had challenged their fears or learned about themselves suggests that vain, again, voluntary arousing negative experiences offer opportunities to, as they put in quotes here, practice aspects of endurance and distress tolerance, potentially resulting in bolstered resilience. In other words, and as perhaps a nice sum up for this special report, yeah, Engaging with spooky things, hearing a scary story, watching a frightening movie, what have you, may not only be culturally constructive and evolutionarily adaptive, with the right approach, it might actually be quite good for our mental and emotional health, too. There's a lot of different reasons why we like scary stories. They're just kind of fun, and there's a lot of different things that they do to our brains that kind of make that fun feeling happen. They have cultural importance in terms of the lessons they can teach and stuff like that. And they are just generally, they're good for you. So that is a good thing. I think on that note, we uh, might finally take ourselves to confront the most frightening things of all. In Shadowlands Roulette. Now, I have never been more terrified to enter the Shadowlands than I am right now, which means hopefully we'll come out the other side much better off than we ever have before. I don't know. I have a similar hope. I am very anxious about this. So for anyone who is the weird listener who decided to listen to part two of a special report first and foremost to get acquainted <laughs> with the show, welcome. Uh, <laughs> welcome to the Shadowlands, the darkest place on earth. Uh, it's a new slogan that I've just made up. <laughs> And yes, of course, Jake and I have been visited by two large Price is Right style wheels. As well as a big cursed coin. A big cursed coin that if you go back in our catalog, started off about the size of a quarter, is now about the size of a kitty swimming pool. (laughs) And about (laughs) as thick as the depth of one of those, which is really annoying. Yeah, it's quite heavy, and yet, despite its weight ever-increasing, we're always capable of flipping it at least once, because we are essentially cursed and soul-bound to engage with this sort of game show experience every so often on the show. Mm -hmm. And it could be easier than that. One of the Price is Right wheels uh, is attached to places in the United States of America. The other one is everywhere else in the world, because fuck everyone else. That is how it was determined? Yes, it's how it was determined. <laughs> we flip the coin to pick a wheel. We then clamber up onto these wheels, which, despite the fact that they fit inside of the rooms in which we sit to record these episodes, they are enormously gigantic, mm-hmm. and uh, we have to clamber up onto them to spin them. We do that. We then go to that place on the Shadowlands.net, the most cursed site in the history of pages online. An ancient website from 1994, is that right? It is, indeed. Uh, Five whole years before an auspicious year. Uh, It feels like so much longer. And then we'll go to the place, we'll read a scary story from it, and we'll be so scared. These are all, uh, like, reader-submitted stories from all across the country and the world. 
and uh, there is nothing more terrifying than these verbatim tellings. Yes, we cannot stress enough how verbatim they will be. When things are this frightening, it's best to let the story do the reading. Why, do you want to flip the coin for me to get on a wheel? I'll do that right now. All right. Oh, God. It seems to be climbing up onto your lap already, so yeah, not great. I'll just stand up here. <laughs> and it has flipped off of my body. There you go. And what did it land on? Other countries. The repulsive wheel of other countries. All right. I'm going to climb up on the wheel here for other countries. All right. Do you want to hold my mic? Yeah, sure. Pass it through. There you go. I believe you have both mics now. And Hi, both mics. Ah. It's going, it's going, and it has landed on Germany. I'm going to scroll through this page of stories of Germany, and I've landed on Schweinfurt. Con Barracks, site of an old Nazi hospital, Psyche Ward, and Nazi dining facilities that are used as barracks for U.S. Army soldiers. Two separate occasions occurred at least two years apart, where two people unknown to each other used the same two rooms and had the same two haunting dream. Oh, used the same room and had the same haunting dream. Hmm. The soldiers would sleep in their beds in a room right above what they, at the time, did not know was a drainage room. Hmm. What they used to do with the bodies before there was embalming. A Nazi soldier standing over their bed, looking down at them and making comments to a nurse that is standing beside him, covered in blood. She has a sad face. The Nazi orders the nurse to do something which is spoken in German, so the soldiers do not know what was said, and the nurse then chokes the us soldier who then wakes out of their dream. Huh. These two soldiers never met before they confess their story and swear the truth behind their stories. Ooh. Other rumors are of an anti-abortionist woman who carries around a fetus in the hallway. Ooh. Well, that was pretty fucking grim. <laughs> what a dark tale of actually gross things. Uh-huh. I believe the coin has gone to your location. It has. I, it managed to find its way here, and it is just kind of nipping at my heels, so I'm just gonna... I'm just gonna kind of kick it. <clears throat> the dreaded wheel of states. Oh, my God. All right. Climb way up here. I can't hear you. Ah, I spun it so hard. <laughs> you sure did. <laughs> Wyoming. Alright, let's see here. I'm gonna go to Rollins. Rollins. Old Wyoming State Penitentiary, aka the Old Pen. <laughs> the Old Pen, as it is affectionately called by citizens of Rollins, was put out of use in the early 1980s. Now the old pen is a tourist attraction, a historical site, and the subject of many tales of paranormal activity. <laughs> Members of tour groups often report hearing strange voices in cells, seeing people disappear around corners, and feeling hostile or tense presences. <gasps> Employees have also reported apparitions and sounds. There was recently an investigation by a group of paranormal experts, but specifics were not revealed except in vague terms. There are several hotbeds of activity in the prison, including the showers, death row, the gas chamber, huh. and the hold, mm -hmm. isolation area that is, huh. and certain specific cells, including one filled with the artwork of an inmate. Only recently restored were the chapel and women's facility, also suspected of paranormal activity. Mm -hmm. Public functions are now held in the prison, including bazaars and Halloween quote-unquote haunted house tours. <laughs> During the bazaars, booths were set up on ground level. This is just page 1 to 15, near the shower area. <laughs> the shower area was always inexplicably cold with a sense of malice. Many inmates were attacked in the shower area. There are also tales of an inmate being unsuccessfully hanged a first time by fellow prisoners and having to be thrown off the rails again. Oh. There's a book called Ghosts on the Range, or something of the like, which includes a more complete set of the experiences. The deer and the antelope play. That's right. Ghost, ghost on the range. <laughs> ah, what a terrifying entry. <laughs> yes, that was 
utterly bone chilling, as are all the stories. It almost the scared me straight to sleep. Yes, and I think, yeah, based on what we know now about why scary stories are so effective to us, we can appreciate how terrifying those two tales were and why they had such a hold on our our consciousness. That's right. Which, of course, so, has been Shadowlands Roulette. roulette. <laughs> well, Jake, do the next part. <laughs> Before we go, we have one more segment we'd like to conclude with, which is uh, the patron appreciation neural dive for evaluation of risk, or pander, which is a function on this arcane computer we have, the NCAA, which makes sense if you heard episode, I want to say 60, I don't know. Something about that. March yep. Madness 2019. Go check it out. We use the machine for stuff. We now use it for calculating which cryptids, creatures, uh, things in the world our Patreon patrons need to be on the lookout for. It's a way of thanking them and warning them, and it's cool. So, let's fire up the machine. Let's fire it right now. <laughs> There it goes. Oh yeah, let's let's plug it into our brains. We plug the machine into the brains here, right through the backs of our skulls. Ah, feels go. good. And uh, we're gonna focus this week on April, April C. C. April, thank you so very much for your support. We appreciate you. Yes. Um, your support goes a long way to making this show happen. Mm-hmm. And April, you need to look out for wild, wild haggis. <laughs> Wild haggis is a hoax said to be native to the Scottish Highlands. <laughs> As with many hoaxes today, it is critically, it is comically claimed. I thought it was critically endangered. <laughs> it is, some would say, comically claimed to be the source of haggis, a traditional Scottish dish that is, in fact, made from the innards of sheep, including, of course, heart, lungs, and liver. Yes, and also herbs or herbs if you're from there, and uh, oatmeal for texture. Shut up, Jake. Sorry. According to some sources, the wild haggis's left and right legs are of different lengths, which of course would allow it to run quickly around steep mountains and hillsides, which make up its natural habitat, but only in one direction. Sounds like a fearsome critter from the lumber woods. It does sound like one of those. I don't remember which one it is, but same deal there. Perhaps an edible version. <laughs> exactly. The former variety can run clockwise around a mountain, while the latter can run counterclockwise. A very good thing to know when looking out for a hoax. Mm-hmm. The two varieties coexist peacefully but are unable to interbreed in the wild because in order for the male of one wow. variety to mate with a female of the other, he must turn to face in the same direction as he is in, as the intended mate, causing him to lose his balance before he can mount her. Something you oh, definitely I want see. you want to think about a food fucking before you eat it. That's right. From now on, I'll always think about haggis having sex with itself or with a female or male version of itself. What a nice thing. I'm glad someone already did the hard work of creating that idea. Fair for your own sunsy face, great chieftain of the pudding race. Uh, and thank uh, you, April, for supporting us on Patreon. <laughs> yes, April, hopefully you will remain a patron after this segment. We appreciate you. Keep your eyes out for some wild haggis. And, uh, yeah. Uh, 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 let's go ahead and unplug the machine now. <laughs> yeah. Ah. Uh, so much better. Yes. We want to thank anyone who wants to support us on Patreon to help make this show possible. At even a dollar of support per month, you can be a entered into a little uh, algorithm to have your own cryptid or creature or, I guess, hoax food monster calculated by the machine. Sexual dream boat. Exactly. Which, I think, in the UK is about, like, what, 75 pence? <laughs> yes. We also do want to remind you that we have a special annual plan deal on right now where you can Oh yeah. You can subscribe on month to month basis, that's fine. We totally understand that. But if you do feel like you want to just go for it and you want to save some money on a yearly basis, you can pay for a whole year at once, but only actually uh, be charged for the cost of ten months of that year. It's a special I think it deal. works up to sixteen percent off, but it's it's like two months off for a year. Uh now through Halloween, you can get that deal if so, you want. Yeah. You'll uh, get 100% of our love for just 80% of your effort. <laughs> That's right. Or something like it. So it's it's a deal everyone would take if they yes. could. And there are cool rewards available. For the $10 level and up, you get a combination of different cool digital rewards as well as stickers. This time, the sticker is going to be 
something cool and glow in the dark that'll be sent out very soon. Ooh, uh, can't yeah. wait to see. So yeah, thanks for all those folks. And of course, we have a cause of the week. The Monday after this episode comes out is Indigenous Peoples Day here where we live. The region now widely referred to as the United States used to be very sustainably maintained by a number of sovereign nations who had lived here for thousands of years. Yeah, they were the first ones here, which is why we, at least on this show, often refer to these folks as First Nations. I actually have since learned that First Nations is specifically a term for indigenous peoples of subarctic Canada. And then in Uh the Arctic Circle, the term is Inuit. Uh, So really, the, the best bet for accuracy in general is to just try and get specific. So in our cases... Uh, Wyatt, you're recording on the land of the Nipmuc and Pakumtuk, and I'm recording mm-hmm. on the land of the Wapakute and the Ocheti Sakowin, who the French hmm. called the Sioux. Ah. These peoples were the custodians of the land that Jake and I both currently live on before European colonizers just straight took it away from them. Mm-hmm. But to be very clear, their descendants are not just gone. Indigenous people are still around all over the place we now call the United States of America, still living their lives and still being screwed by white folks such as ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we'd like listeners to take the time in the coming week to learn more about the indigenous peoples of the Americas. For starters, you can check out native.lands-ca to see a world map of indigenous territories and punch in your home address to see whose land you live on. We'll also link to a lengthy but interesting article about land reparations, the idea of trying to make amends for the damage done by colonization. It's something that's gaining momentum in different areas, but again, this continent is home to hundreds of sovereign indigenous nations, so there is no one-size-fits-all solution here. This article explains the different forms land reparations might take for different peoples. Finally, reparations, whether for indigenous genocide or for centuries of slavery or for any number of atrocities with such lasting consequences, is never going to be as simple as just giving people money. We can't just keep pretending that capitalism is a band-aid we can reasonably slap on any problem. That is totally true. In the case of land reparations for Native Americans, money is really missing the point. Land isn't real estate. It's a home. It's an ecosystem. It's a vital and vibrant part of our living planet. So as you read about this stuff, keep in mind, capitalism is a threat to life on Earth. And yeah, I feel like it's a pretty good place to just end. Uh, Rate and review our show if you want to. Um, Remember that we have Jeff the Mongoose merchandise available now through the end of October if you want to. Limited dish. Mm -hmm. So there's, yeah, capitalism is bad, but if you want to buy stuff from us, you can. Yeah, Um, Yeah, give us your money. Yeah, and thank you for joining us for this Super Duper Session Special Report kicking off October. Very fun times. Very fun indeed. Check in with us next week when there might be some hot singles in your area, if you know what I mean. I doubt they do. What I mean is we're interviewing Jordan Shively. So come Ah. come back next week and it'll be a fun time. Come check it out. We'll see you guys there. Thanks for tuning in. Mm -hmm. Goodbye. Bye.